Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Good morning, Missio Day. We are here in week two of our new series in Nehemiah, and we're looking at the theme of rebuilding. David Wagner set us up last week to place our purpose for this series in the context of this book in the Old Testament. Let me give us a really quick recap here. So we're feeling this longing to rebuild, to um, have the old uprooted and to see what God would build now in its place. We have that longing, especially as we are just so done with 2020 and we're ready for something new. As a church, we long to be a place of hope and hospitality and healing that uh, would be here for a world that is longing for some kind of renewing work. But especially in recent weeks, we see that the perception of the world might be anything but that when they think of the church. The flying of Jesus flags at a political rally suggesting that God sides with a political party was so angering to me. The threat of Christian nationalism, that lie that God would bless one country, ours, over and against another, lies to threaten the credibility of our very witness, our testimony, our living testimony to the world as disciples of Jesus. We long to live a different witness, a different testimony that speaks to God's greater truth. So our world needs a better encounter with the faithful people of God. I got right on my soapbox in the beginning. I'm going to step back off that for a minute and let's get back to Nehemiah. That's the longing that we feel and why we want this to actually be an equipping series that we would open our hearts to spiritual formation, not just learning in this series. So really quickly on uh, the book of Nehemiah. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah actually together tell a story of God rebuilding the people of Jerusalem from the nation of Judah. So... David last week gave a great Old Testament summary of this whole story, but the really quick version for those who missed it, that God throughout the Old Testament had a theme saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. But people kept falling away and failing their part of their God-given identity. The Israelites ended up falling, the nation of Israel ended up falling into two nations, Israel and Judah. And the people of Judah were based in Jerusalem. There was a temple there for the presence of God to be in their midst, to mark them. So in around 587 BC, uh, Jerusalem was actually overtaken by Babylon. And a lot of the people of God were sent into exile. But then around 539, there was a transfer of power as Persia overtook Babylon. And some of the exiles were free to return to Jerusalem. Now, quick couple of notes on exiles. Not everyone was taken. The elite for sure were taken. Royal families, administration, priests, prophets. The peasant farmers, those without power or influence, were actually left behind to tend to the land. When the exiles were encouraged or allowed to return to Jerusalem, some chose not to. They were sitting pretty in their new land. Nehemiah, for example, sits in a place of great comfort and influence as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He would have been, um, in some translations or uh, some commentaries, they would say this is a position of not just influence, but like advising the king. And there's a sense of camaraderie. Uh, He's there in a moment where the king is 
uh, dining with his wife and they're in conversation with Nehemiah. So there's, there's, a, um, there's a place of influence that he sits in. So the exile system by taking the elites is actually an intentional process of assimilation whereby the conquered people lose their old identity and become loyal to their, their captors, the superpower, thus benefiting the new superpower. And remember the time between exile and freedom to return was about 50 years. So a lot of people were born in exile. They don't have a, a familiarity or a, like a tie to Jerusalem, so to speak. But it wasn't just about the city. It was about their identity as the people of God, God's people marked by God's presence. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah together talk about the rebuilding of the temple, meaning God's presence, the renewal of the spiritual identity of the people with the reading of the law and the call to repentance, and the rebuilding of this wall. Now, a quick note about the wall. We think of walls as uh, barriers, ways to isolate, have privacy, um, a way to avoid interacting with the other. Um, in the ancient Near East, the wall around a city was very seriously needed for protection against very, very real dangers. In the absence of a wall being around Jerusalem, the remnant, the, the peasants who remained would be more vulnerable and spread out more like a vast uh, a vulnerable village than any kind of city where a lot of people would have been just working for the good of themselves, not like a corporate identity and a sense of being for one another. So that's part of the reason that the walls were really important. But another reason too to know in that culture is that that wall had a, became a beautiful symbol of the city of Jerusalem, a strong and secure center for this people of God. Um, it's a sign that uh, the, the, the church and state, so to speak, were not separated. Religion and politics weren't separated. And so your national identity was tied to your God and the wall and the city would represent the provision of your God for that people group. So it means a lot more. Therefore, when Nehemiah hears that the wall is in ruins, he weeps, he fasts, and he prays. And that gets us to where we are in chapter two. Um, and we're gonna read from the NLT version, chapter two, verses one to 10. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. If it please the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple's fortress, for the city walls and for the house for myself." And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I, was, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. 
but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobia the Ammonite, sorry guys, official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So a couple of things to note as we look at this story and the radical faith of Nehemiah in this moment. Number one, Nehemiah was terrified. Yes, he was close to the king, but this move took incredible personal risk. Verse two, he admitted, I was terrified when the king saw this distress. Why would that be? It was actually dangerous to show sorrow before the king. The king had the right to execute anyone who displeased him. In Esther 4.2, we learn that anyone wearing mourning clothing was banned from the palace. It needed to be a happy place where there were no troubles. And so this was actually at great risk to Nehemiah. I point this out because conviction and willingness to act doesn't need to come out of a sense of solid footing or confidence. The fact is Nehemiah moved faithfully forward into action despite the fact that he was in fact terrified. There's an important humanness in this to me, a reminder that as through this whole thing, we'll see that Nehemiah is an incredible man of faith. Nehemiah is a great leader. As one description read, he's able to win the permission of those who are over him and ignite the passion of those who were beside him. Yes, but he's still terrified. He's a regular person. Faith perseveres in the reality of threat. And he is willing to move forward, trading his influence and wealth and comfort to head into a messy place. He risked offending the people in power over him and facing opposition when he arrived at his destination. Oh, that we would be willing, that I would be willing to do the same. What an example of radical faith, even when he was terrified. Number two, Nehemiah was bold, so bold in these asks. With fear, he asked, can I go? Yes. And can I get letters for safe travel? Will you put your name behind my action so no one can touch me? Yes. Can I have a letter to get all the timber I need to build this entire thing? Yes. And the king sent extra officers and horsemen for protection. I believe the boldness came from a place of conviction. Not, we already know he was terrified. It wasn't that he was feeling courageous. His boldness name came from conviction that he was doing the will of God. We see this, we, he prayed for favor in chapter one. And when he receives the favor of the king, he immediately accredits it to God, not to himself in verse eight. Additionally, Nehemiah was committed. And what I just mean here is clearly not everybody was happy to see him. The two governors of the region are not pleased, but Nehemiah does not miss a step. He is not deterred. That's radical faith. So what can we learn from a radical faith that can be bold and committed despite being terrified? I wanna take a look at what we would call Nehemiah's devotional life. And I'm gonna point out two things, and then we're gonna look at how we can learn from the example of radical faith of Nehemiah. Number one, he was a man of prayer. And number two, he knew the story of God and lived into it. So number one, let's talk about Nehemiah as a man of prayer. This book records a number of places, multiple places. Nehemiah's frequent response to a problem is immediately to turn to prayer. But in this passage, there's one specific prayer that strikes me that I want to point out. With a prayer to God of heaven, I replied, if it pleased the king, can I go? That last part's my paraphrase. But he starts before talking to the king and giving his bold request. 
he says a prayer to God. Now, why do I highlight this prayer? It's a posture of prayer I think that we can forget about. This is not the stop, find silence and stillness and focus time of prayer. That's important, that's beautiful, but this is a different prayer. This is something that I would call a life that is marked by an undercurrent of prayer. Let me explain. First Thessalonians 5:17 is this really short verse that says, never stop praying or pray without ceasing. And that can feel really daunting. I have to go to work. I can't just sit in my prayer closet all day. I don't live in a convent. Like, I, I can't, how do you pray without ceasing? And I think Nehemiah shows this in a different way. Let's say, I'll use this example. Just pretend you were stuck in a home during a pandemic with a roommate or um, uh, a spouse or a family member. Just pretend you're in a shared space together for a year. And you don't need to restart every conversation when you have focus and silence and stillness. I don't need to sit down and address uh, my daughter and say, dear Gigi, I really hope this weekend when your grandparents come, they have a safe trip. You don't have to do that. You're in a constant open conversation, a dialogue that in some ways you never close. In our prayer life, by the way, amen is saying, yes, let it be so. It's not a signature sign off. It doesn't mean respectfully, Melissa. It's not a sign off to a letter. And so what if our prayer life didn't close conversation? I think that's what's happening. Uh, I think about the inauguration today. As Elijah and I are here, we're about one hour out from the inauguration happening. I look at the news right before I preach and see national guards lining the streets. And I, I say a quick prayer to God, God, help peace reign in our nation. And I don't even, I don't, that doesn't mean that's my one prayer or I'm just shooting it like a football Hail Mary hoping that one sticks. It's, it's a continuation of all the prayer conversations that we all have been having with God for peace to reign in our nation over the division. It's saying that I don't need to stop that prayer to speak now. They can happen collectively. It's opening up our conversation that we're already having in our mind to have it be a conversation with God. That's what prayer is. These are areas of prayer that you don't have to wait till everything is perfect to just have your conversation, your heart posture engaged with God. So number one, Nehemiah is a man of prayer. And number two of Nehemiah's devotional life is that he knew the story of God. Now, stay with me for a minute because I wanna take an analogy that struck me this week as we honored uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on Monday. Talk about faith in action and calling others to do the same. It's absolutely extraordinary. Even if we can't solve it all, we have to do something. Even when he knew the path ahead was going to be hard, he's an extraordinary example of radical faith. One quote that I saw, he says, uh, Dr. King says, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. That could totally be a theme for what Nehemiah was doing in chapter two here. He took a radical step, even though he did not know how the king would respond or what provision he would have or how to build a wall for that matter. Taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. Now we all know, I think, a lot of the words of the famous, I have a dream speech of Dr. King in 1963 during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. But I point out one thing from within this beautiful call to racial justice. 
Dr. King says, now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. What this is, is a call to live into something that is not yet a current reality. The fact that it's not a reality doesn't mean to accept it. It means we need to dive right in to that place where it's broken. But listen to this language later in the speech. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That is Isaiah 40 language. Dr. King knew the story of God. He's calling us into God's dream. He's holding God's future promises up to us and saying, live into this now. Racial justice now, love triumphing over evil now, light overtaking darkness, all in his quotes now. He knew the story of God, the plans and promises of God and called us into action towards that in our present. He had an eternal destination in mind. New Jerusalem language, every tribe and every tongue, justice, shalom, and he lived into that future glory and called others to the same. Now, returning to Nehemiah, he didn't know the new covenant language yet. Jesus had not yet come, but he knew the faithful promises of God in scripture. He knew the Old Testaments. The dream for the rebuilding of this temple, of this wall, it was not Nehemiah's alone. He knew what that meant for the safety of vulnerable people. He knew it represented identity to the people of God. He knew the exile had been foretold by the prophets when people disobeyed, and he knew that God promised to rebuild their land when and they returned to God. Prophecies spoke of this rebuilding of the wall in Zechariah and Daniel. Um, last week, David uh, referenced Ezekiel 36, and I was reading that uh, later through this week. And he was talking about the portion where um, God says, I will return, I will uh, exchange their stony, stubborn hearts for tender, responsive hearts. But if you read further down into... Um, Starting around 33 in Isaiah 36, uh, the sovereign Lord says, I, I will cleanse you of your sins. I'll repopulate your cities. The ruins will be rebuilt. Further down, the abandoned and ruined cities now have strong walls and are filled with people. I will rebuild the ruins and replant the wastelands. Nehemiah knew the will of God was to do this work. He already knew this story. So here's what I wanna suggest. There's a theme that I've been hearing lately uh, from people, a, a friend outside of Missio Day talking about, I've really fallen away from any devotional life and started to say all the shoulds. I, I, it, I, it's my fault, I, I should do this better, I should do that. Uh, wait a minute, hold on, what if it's simpler than that? We've also, we're talking as a staff team, how we're hearing a lot of people along a similar theme. It's really hard in this season sometimes to feel like we're hearing from God or to stay focused uh, in any kind of devotional time. And people are just saying, it's not working for me. But I look at, look at this example of Nehemiah, and it's wonderful to have a spiritual high, to have a long stretch of time in prayer, to have devotional books that help us spur us on in our devotional practices, yes. But for those of you who are feeling like, my devotional time just isn't working. What if we look at Nehemiah and say, what if devotional time just means knowing the story of God, living into it with an undercurrent of prayer, just keeping the conversation open with God, Maybe there won't be a big answer, but God's already told us his story and we get to live into that now in an actionable way like Nehemiah did, living into that 
future that's on our heart. When we feel the dissonance between what our reality is, what should be, and what um, is happening in our world, the chaos and the hatred and all of that, when we feel that dissonance and that tension, that is eternity written on our hearts. Dr. King knew that and he stood in the gap and called others to do the same. Nehemiah, same thing, stood in the gap. This isn't how God intends it to be. Their devotional life was in recognizing that there was a better story of God and that they could call people to action, even if they didn't clearly have like a set um, moment in a prayerful devotion when God gave them a revelation of what to do next. Sometimes we seek that. What if God has already told us how to live into the story that God has for God's people? And yes, it's true. It won't come to fulfillment right now, but we as the church can live into that now. And that is how we can be a place of hope healing and hospitality for a world desperately longing for renewal. May it be so. May we live in devotion to the story that has already been written with open eyes and willing mouths to speak truth into hurting places. Let us pray. Oh, God, I just, I pray for moments of ability to do these things, to not only learn from Nehemiah, but to let that seep into our devotional life to have our devotion to you look a lot like an undercurrent of prayer and a willingness to live into your story now and call others to do the same. I pray right now for peace over our nation, for just something to inbreak and make today go smoothly. Uh, today, sorry, being Wednesday. And I pray that when we are gathered together, um, having this service time on Sunday morning, that, that we will know that you are a God who just loves us and calls us to act into the broken places here and now. Give us the strength, give us the will, give us the eyes to see your will, your story and call us into action there. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.